Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Super excited to have this conversation today. My guest is an education consultant and the owner of Pioneer Connections. I have Dr. Adrian Kennedy with me today. Hi, Dr. Kennedy. Hi, LaShonda. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. So glad to be here. I am excited to have you here finally. And um, so I'm going to start like I do with all my guests and ask, what's your labor of love? Yeah. So I thought about how to answer this question in so many different ways. And what it boils down to for me is my labor of love really is advocating for the needs of children who have been marginalized and who are navigating threatening systems. Threatening systems. Mm. Yes, Yes. and we can unpack that if you want to a little bit more. Um, And I do this really by partnering with adults who are working within a system and helping them to identify practices and ways of being that really perpetuate these inequities that we see. Um, I design and facilitate learning opportunities and cultivate relationships that incorporate some of my favorite things, which are art, music, literature, culture, and what I know about brain science and trauma and history. And I really take all of that and push adults towards creating new practices that allow for more humanity and more love within the system they work in. Mm. Mm. Humanity, y'all know I'm all about being human Mm -hmm. with other humans. If you ain't got y'all t-shirts, y'all should go do that. But anyway, um, (laughs) I, there's so much for us to talk about within this and I can't wait, but I want to start by asking or continue by asking can you tell us a little bit about where this is rooted for you? So advocacy and the creation of opportunities for people to do things differently than they've done in the past. Mm -hmm. Is there an incident, a moment, or just a period of time in your life that you can trace this passion back to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are so many, but probably the one that stands out the most is Um, You know, growing up, I went to uh, one of the top high schools in the state of Ohio. And so I had a lot of privilege um, in being able to go to that school. And, um, you know, they say it's the best high school, but, you know, that's relative. It's like best for who? Because I was in an environment that was lot, there was lots of academic rigor, but I didn't see myself a lot. And so I was blessed to be able to go to a HBCU, uh, Tennessee State University, go Tigers. And um, at TSU, I got to see myself in a different light. I got to see like people who look like me who were doing all different kinds of things who wanted to you know, be pilots and engineers and doctors and nurses. And that was amazing to me coming from a place where I never really saw myself. Um, And I had a teacher, um, uh, it was a social work teacher and um, it was my last class and I was wrapping up getting ready to graduate. And he pulled me to the side and said, you know, you have a responsibility now to help uplift the people that are coming behind you. And I always knew that I wanted to help people, 
But having the experience of attending the HBCU really made me want to, it really, uh, really encapsulated that desire to help folks who didn't always get all of the um, advantages, all of the resources, all of the things that they needed in order to navigate this world. And so that really, that experience really is what um, pushed me towards doing what I do. I appreciate that so much. So one, I don't want to take things for granted, HBCU, Historically Black College and University, in case you're not familiar with the acronym. And I, in a completely different realm, but I, I can understand kind of the the bookends of your experience, right? So you go from a school where you did not see yourself represented much at all to a college experience that was like, whoa, like I see reflections of myself in so many things. For me, I graduated high school, there were 32 of us. And then I went on to a major university where the campus itself had 40,000 people. So you just, just going from, I, I don't know that as we're going through it, we recognize how stark differences like that can impact us, even if we're unaware of the differences like in the moment. And as you were talking about seeing, seeing people reflecting your identity, I was literally laying in a bed thinking about this this morning. Um, somehow I got to thinking about like how I had come to view my body the way that I did growing up um, and the echoes of that that still exist. And what I began to realize is it's not so much that I saw representations of bodies that looked like mine and I was told they were bad. I don't recall a whole lot of that. What it was though, was that I saw a whole bunch of bodies that didn't look like mine being called good. Yeah. And as a child, particularly, abstract thought develops later in time. And so as young children, they're very concrete in their thought processes. If that is good, mm-hmm. then things not that must be bad. It's just how the brain processes incoming data. And so I began to think about how many times, how not seeing a reflection of myself in positive light can really impact a person, period, but over time. And I just think about the importance of representation, the importance of seeing yourself reflected. And I mean that in every sense of the, every sense of parts of our identity, because when we only see one thing or just a couple of things being told that this is how you be, this is what success looks like, this is what health looks like, this is what beauty looks like, then the the way that our brains are processing information is things outside of that must not be. And so kudos, I went to (laughs) the opposite of a historically Black college, PWI, predominantly white institution. Um, And But it was interesting how I was able to find Black community, even though we only made up 8% of the population, we kind of pulled together in that. But in the greater institution, no, there was not a lot of representation. So what that meant was I continued on a path of striving towards what I had been taught, which was this idea of whiteness, how to speak, how to be, how to think. Mm -hmm. So having that experience at uh, Tennessee State, having someone really impart in you this um, encouragement to help, where did you go from there? Yeah, so my very first job after I left Tennessee State was um, as a community support provider, and I was working with individuals, young young folks, um, young adults who had a diagnosis of a mental health, um, they had a mental health diagnosis, um, and some other diagnosis, usually they were dual diagnosis, and my job was to help them navigate <laughs> um, systems, and so um, I did that for a while, and um, then found, really found my niche um, as a, a friend, and that was actually my job title, 
Um, my job was to befriend eight girls who were attending um, elementary school, kindergarten, in a, um, what we would call, I guess, um, high risk, although I hate using that term. We gonna get there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> hate using that term. Um, but, you know, a, a poorly resourced school and neighborhood. And um, I befriended them and my job was really to just um, give them access, help them build social capital, help them um, increase their social emotional skills and expose them to different opportunities outside of their neighborhood and their community and also looking for um, places inside their neighborhoods and communities where they could find um, community and build resilience and find strength. And I absolutely loved, loved, loved that job. I love doing that. It was with an organization called Friends of the Children that is still around today. And um, that really made an impression on me um, that I really wanted to continue to work with and on behalf of children, especially children who were not getting the resources that um, other children really were getting. So that is what kind of led me um, to continue the work. Eventually, I found myself working with youth in foster care. And um, I did that for almost 10 years, um, working with youth in care and also foster parents, training foster parents, um, helping folks who were new to the system of foster care get licensed and all of that and help facilitate several adoptions. Um, and that was a pivotal experience for me because what I started to see was as I was doing all this work and shout out to all the folks who are working within the foster care system. I know it's really um, hard work and it's uh, work that you have to do with your heart. And for me, what I was finding was I was getting kids into foster homes and that would be okay. And I would be working so hard to get everything set up for, for kids in their home and then they would go to school. And at school, things would happen. They'd get in trouble, something would happen. And sometimes they'd get suspended or they even get expelled. And for a child in foster care, sometimes a suspension or an expulsion could mean that they would have to leave their foster home because a foster parent could say, you know, like I have to work. I can't stay home for 30 days or whatever to provide care for this child. And sometimes they would have to literally move because something happened at school and they got suspended. And so that really inspired me to want to go into the school system to help teachers and administrators really understand um, the needs of children, especially children who had experienced trauma in the foster care system. And so that's really when I got into um, trauma responsive care and working within the school system. So shifted my work, came out of foster care and started doing my work inside the system of education. And so now that's what I do. I work with folks at every level of the education system from parents to teachers to principals to administrators, district and state leaders all around helping them to um, be more responsive to the trauma that students have um, experienced and um, really to eliminate the inequities that we see in outcomes. So much. That was a lot. <laughs> no, so much, yes, but so much and so good. One, I have to go back to the fact that you had a job where your job title was friend. Yeah. And kudos to that organization and that work. Like I got emotional because it was the most human social service description I had ever heard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the title, it's amazing how um, titles matter. First mm -hmm. of all, they absolutely matter. 
and social service folk are always given some kind of title that would insinuate authority. Mm-hmm. And so your job title was a friend. So that, that, that warmed me mm-hmm. um, because you're going in with these five, six-year-old kiddos. You say, I'm just here to be your friend. Mm-hmm. And, and I can only imagine the impact of that title on their perception of friendship throughout their life so if they're going to be a friend to someone else they can remember miss adrian and what she did for them and how they can show up for other people so i got goosebumps that was that was awesome and and it, it is it's going from system to system so you are a systems person so before we dig further I want to talk a little bit about how we met and Mm -hmm. as we've continued to do work together like Adrian is our systems person like when we gonna talk systems (laughs) we bring in Dr. Kennedy because that that is the work of systems and so you know um I I know my version um of how we met not that I think it'll vary much but can you share like what brought us together yeah, so huh. so kind of the backstory is I was attending a training with Sarah Buffy on um, the timeline, and I was sitting in the training, and I was like, "This timeline is amazing," and what if? And that's kind of how my brain works. What if we did this? What if we tweaked it this way? And so. I was having these thoughts about systems and what if we did this timeline instead of on an individual, what if we did a whole system and looked at it um, that way? And so I caught Sarah um, during a break and told her what I was thinking. And she's like, yes, I love this idea. So I kept working on it and Sarah and I kept in touch and we decided that we would come together um, to kind of work through some of the kinks and talk through it some more. And so I came to Cincinnati to um, meet with her and you were there. Um, you were a part of that, that first meeting where we came together to kind of work through how we might do a systems timeline. And so that's how we met. And I remember thinking like, wow, she is a powerhouse. And I was so like glad that you were in the room. Like you just made it better. And um, I was so grateful that you were there and that we've continued to get to know each other and work together since then. Yes. So thank you. And very similar, right? So y'all, Sarah Buffy, she she on she in season one right we do a lot of collaborative work together and when she hit me up and she's like listen homie (laughs) there I met somebody out of Columbus and she wants to do a timeline and so for timeline we're talking about the trauma-informed biographical timeline she wants to do a timeline on the education system and I was like yo that's dope count me in right and so when we do it was just something I, I really appreciated because I know systems are jacked up. I know systems are full of inequities and they are trauma inducing, but to sit and see the data before my face, right? These weren't even the qualitative stories of people's experiences navigating the education system but we started in what year do you remember oh yeah uh, it was had to be like the 1600s 1600s right and you we just see data we're talking laws we're talking verifiable data of the trauma that the education system instituted by outright naming who could and could not learn for the sake of exploitive capitalism and maintaining power. And as this unfolded, I just remember being so not just appreciative, but in awe of someone who could take such a large thing like the education system and put it before my face. 
you know, I work on a very micro level most of the times. I'm one-on-one with folks. I'm in small groups. And I just don't think it is part of how I would have thought to take an entire system. I've thought about doing an organization. I've sold several organizations. Y'all need a timeline. You need to see how this is impacting. But the, the, the lifespan of the education system, as we know it in this country, it blew my mind. And so I too am so glad that we have been able to continue to not just get to know each other um, as friends, but collaborate and bring together that systems work and then my very individual micro approach. And when you put those things together, they're amazing. So before we go to the education system, let's take a minute and talk about the foster care system. If you haven't had an opportunity, episode 64 of my podcast with a young lady named Ahila, um, she wrote a foster guide handbook for youth in foster care and tells her story about her experience in foster care. And that could be a really good place for you to start. If you if you just don't know or unaware of how the foster care system can be a trauma-inducing system um, that separates families, but also just perpetuates so much harm for us. And, and I'm, I'm not knocking it saying that there aren't good things. There are so many wonderful and beautiful stories, but we're not talking about the individuals. Like I say that and people are like, but I know someone, I don't care who you know, we're talking about the system itself. Okay. So um, I too, um, worked for an organization that when I went into the training role, had the amazing opportunity to work with foster care parents, um, work with staff who were supporting foster care parents and foster youth. Um, and it was a privilege because there are so many people whose hearts are amazingly dedicated to providing safety and a home for young people. They are also not supported within that system very often. So the burnout rate is super high. They are under-resourced and they are under, and, and by resource, I don't just mean physically resourced, like with money and food, they aren't given the tools and toys to know how to navigate loving, caring for, and fostering a child who has had trauma oftentimes since utero. And I would always start by saying, by virtue of this child being in your home, they've experienced trauma, period. Right. Just the separation and the loss of not being with their biological family. Now, how that looks and manifests is different. Within the foster care system, what were some of the gems, like as you would go on to do systems work, what were some of the observations and gems you were able to take from the foster care system that you've been able to continue to use as you work with other systems? Yeah, I think the biggest gem has been the power of relationships. Um, you know, it was imperative for me to build relationships as I worked within the foster care system, whether it was with um, foster parents, um, folks who are interested in being foster parents, um, youth who are experiencing foster care, they all needed to know that I cared about the outcome that we were trying to achieve, whether it was um, getting a, a foster child reunited with their biological family, whether it was a new foster parent who, who was going through the process, which can be very um, taxing to even become a foster parent. It's, it's a lot of hoops to go through. So they needed that relationship with me to know that I was going to be there with them throughout that. Um, and with uh, foster parents who were currently fostering, they needed to know that they could call me if they needed me, if they needed support, if they needed someone to talk to, if they were having a difficult time, um, that somebody was going to be in their corner. And so the same thing is true. And I had to apply that same relationship building um, skill set going into the education system, because um, not only is it important for me to build those relationships with the adults, but it's so important for the adults to build those relationships with the students. And so I have to be able to model that so that they can do that with the kids. And it goes back again to that 
the relationships that I had to build with um, the young folks that I worked with when I was a friend. Adults need to be able to cultivate those kinds of relationships with each other and with um, young folks. And so that's the biggest gem that um, I took from my work uh, in the foster care system is really just the power of relationships, the importance of um, cultivating relationships with folks. Because relationships really are the foundation of everything that we do here. And because we live in a culture and a society that is uh, very much rooted in supremacist culture, which means that from the onset, our culture is hierarchical. Mm -hmm. It means that someone or someone, some group based on some identity has been deemed more valuable, more knowledgeable and all of that than other people. So just the basis of a supremacist culture, right? And so embedded in that is this idea of the adult minor relationship, Mm -hmm. that adults are more knowledgeable and have more authority and have more value than children. And it's not true. It's just following the formula of the supremacist culture in which we live, which means that for the most part, the vast majority of of adults are never even suggested that they befriend children. Mm. It's that they lead maybe as the most compassionate, you know, maybe that's the most compassionate form of interaction that most adults are taught, lead children, Mm. right? But embedded in that, it's still a hierarchy. How many adults have been taught to come alongside children and just be human with them? Mm -hmm. So I wanted to bring that up. The other thing that I was going to say was the process of becoming a foster parent is extremely rigorous. And I understood that as I listened to potential foster parents or prospective foster parents and actual foster parents talk about the process. But then we got to have a firsthand experience with it because my husband went through the process of adopting my son. And we had to go through the process, all the processes that any foster Mm -hmm. um, or adoptive parent would have gone through, even though it was a step-parent adoption. And there, there was pages and pages and pages and pages of things that had to be done and access to information. But one of the experiences throughout all of that, besides I don't even want to say drop the ball. It was one of those things where like, if they told you it could take three to seven days, it was always going to take seven. And on that seventh day, they was going to tell you, you missed something. So what Mm -hmm. could have taken two to three months for us end up taking nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. in addition to that, (laughs) we had to have a home study. Mm -hmm. And then that home study, there is some contracted social worker who has to come to the home to make sure that the home is um, a fit living environment for the child in question or future children. And there is a list of things that they give you to make sure you have. And some of that is like, what are going to be the sleeping arrangements for this child? Like, what kind of access to food do they have? But also things like, do you have... Um, an evacuation plan hung on your wall. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have fire extinguishers Mm -hmm. and working um, smoke detectors? And is your hot water temperature not hotter than this temperature? Okay. So we were looking at this like, oh, wow. Right now this, this kid, we didn't all live together for this long, but we're like, okay, so high, high, go get a thermometer, I guess, like how we know how hot the hot water is, right? Mm -hmm. So we go through all of this. Social worker comes to her house and she also has to talk to me um, as the biological parent. She had to talk to my husband as the adoptive parent and she talked to siblings. She talked to my son. So she comes in and it, I have to, I have to admit, like it was a very interesting experience. Um, She's a, she was a white woman and there was something I felt about her coming in my house and being extremely invasive, but I understood it was the process. We opened the door and I I live in a white suburb and a newly built home. And the very first thing she said to me or us as we opened the door was, 
this is a nice house or this is a nice neighborhood. I can't remember which one, but this is a nice house or this is a nice neighborhood. And so even if I don't read anything into the shock of that, Mm -hmm. um, she comes in, she has the conversations that she needs to have. And then it's time for her to do her inspection. The inspection that we worked really hard on, the inspection that we took seriously, the inspection that we did every single thing on. And when I tell you, she didn't look at half of it. She did not look at half of it. I had to be like, um, so do you want to check this water? Mm-hmm. And here is where this fire extinguisher is. And we have another one here. Do you, you know what I mean? And, and the fact that I had to, oh, oh yeah. And then it was pretty much like, oh, you know, it's okay. So I'm going to go type this up and everything. And I thought, but if I lived somewhere else, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if the same family lived in the middle of the city mm-hmm. in some of other neighborhood, I can guarantee you she would have been going down that list. She made a presumption about the fitness Mm -hmm. of my husband adopting my son before she walked in my home because of the neighborhood she drove through and the house I lived in. Mm -hmm. And while that may have been favorable, and I'm finger quoting that, the same thing is done when she goes to somebody else's house and it's not always favorable right? And, and that's race aside. Well, that's race contributing. Like it it, it ain't never not a factor, but I'm not specifically saying it's around race. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I just think about, and it, it angered me. It frustrated me. And I think a lot of people would have been like, what are you complaining about? Like, it was easy for you. And it wasn't as hard. I'm like, no, it wasn't easy for me, but I'm never just thinking about myself. I'm thinking about the system in which other people have to navigate that don't, that, that it doesn't look like this. Mm-hmm. And so I, I share that. I don't know if I've, I've shared that before on the podcast, but it's relevant. That, my friends, would be an example of bias. Mm-hmm. The thing that a lot of people still don't think they have, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because it's not always biased against. Sometimes it's biased towards. Mm-hmm. And things that trigger or activate for people oh they're kind or they're this like my home and neighborhood activated a series of thoughts with this woman that presumed good intent and Mm -hmm. capacity and capability on our part yeah and that sucks because if she goes somewhere else the same set of activations can get going to say someone is not fit and not capable and doesn't have the capacity before she even recognizes the efforts that they've put into to do the things, right? And that's just a systemic thing. So let's be aware of that. Those people who are like, I'm not privileged. And if you're listening to this podcast, by this point, you probably don't say shit like that. Like, you know, you would have been turned off (laughs) by me by now. I do think if you're like, "Uh uh-uh, right? So I get the whole preaching to the choir, but that's one way to start observing privilege, what did I just walk into that, that I didn't even, by virtue of nothing I did, people just assumed mm-hmm. that, that it's okay. You know, it, or that it's not okay. Or not okay. Right. Because the same thing happens when we look at inequities within the system around foster care, Black children are more likely to be removed from their homes. They um, spend longer amounts of time in foster care than um, other demographics, and they are less likely to be reunited with their families. And so there was a study also that happened where, um, you know, when before a child is removed from the home, there has to be some kind of assessment. And so there was a group, I'm not sure where this, um, I can't remember where, where it happened, but there was a group of um, child welfare workers who were really trying to remove the bias 
um, from those decisions. And so what they would do would, would take a, a case and remove all kinds of um, identifying information, names, zip codes, because oftentimes that would be um, a giveaway. Um, anything that could help someone identify the race, income, neighborhood, or where a child was, and they would present on what was happening and make a decision. And they found that when they did those blind kind of um, assessments, that the inequities started to lessen, that Black children weren't removed from their home as often. So that bias, yes, it can work towards and it can work against and it contributes to the inequities that we see in foster care and in all systems because we all have bias what's so yes what's interesting about those blind studies is how sometimes people like i don't have enough information like because decision making is often so primed around these social identities Mm -hmm. that when people get information voided they're like well I need to know more like Mm -hmm. I've been through so many circuits I I, there's I just need a little more information and I was like "Mm, your biases aren't kicking in which means it is harder work that's what I want people to understand our biases are mental shortcuts Mm -hmm. to allow us to make decisions quickly and efficiently so when we take away identifying information and it feels harder to make a decision that's because we don't understand how much we are constantly relying on the automatic decisions of our biases to help point us in a direction And so that's where we see the inequities dropping because now we're looking at the situation, not all the perceived data we have around information, how long it took um, members of the LGBTQ plus community to even be considered as foster and adoptive parents because of those same biases. You start retracting or redacting the 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 social identifiers all of a sudden you look at this person on paper and you're like my goodness this would be an amazing home Mm -hmm. for this or you look at something you like why would we put a kid there then you put the information back and one of them is some marginalized person that you would have thought not and the other is some upstanding person in the community and you're like whoa these things look different. So I appreciate that. If you go back to season one, episode 37 with Aubrey Page, you'll be able to listen to someone who is, she's an adoptive mom. And this episode was about FASD, uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. However, we talked a lot about the foster care system. And when you talk about the, cause she is an adoptive parent. She's a white woman who is an adoptive parent to two black identifying boys. And the fact when she talks about how the foster care system is so starkly the reunification piece that black children are less likely to be reunified with their families and all of that goes into again the the perception and bias of the fit of parenting based on all these other things but foster care system you took from it relationships now you're in the education system and you're still utilizing the relationship building and the importance of relationship in that when you talk about modeling I find it interesting because I had a job where my job was to coach and model okay um, with model behaviors within an organization what I quickly learned is people don't know you're modeling unless you tell them you're modeling Mm-hmm. we used to think that like, oh, I'm just going to do this and they're going to pick up on that. I found, no, that's not what happened. What happens was people are like, oh, good, you good at that. So every time I have an issue with this kid, I'm going to call you back right. in. And it's like, wait, that's not what we're doing here. So when you are um, doing your work within the systems, can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Really, my work is two part. The first um, part of my work is really that designing and facilitating learning opportunities. And then the other part of my work is creating those relationships where I'm coaching and modeling. Um, but I would say modeling, I'm modeling all the time. 
um, even when I'm designing and facilitating um, professional learning opportunities, because I found that it's important to even pull back the curtain on those things as well and say, when I did this facilitative move, here's the reason why I did it. And here's how you can do it. It's always a teaching, always a teaching opportunity. And so I am always trying to be really explicit with folks about why I'm making the moves that I'm making. Like there's no, um, there's no veil here. Everything is very um, upfront, exposed. I want you to know why I'm doing what I'm doing because um, the goal for me is whatever I share um, in a coaching conversation or in a, a professional learning opportunity, I want you to be able to take some of this and use it in your practice. And so that's really, um, really what I'm trying to do. Is, is help take everything that I know and share it with folks. I really see a lot of my work is just sharing what I know with folks so that they can use it in their practice and hopefully make, um, you know, in, interrupt some of those practices and ways of being that are harmful um, and develop some new practices with some of the stuff. They're not gonna get it all from me but some of the stuff that um, they learned from me that they can take and move forward with. I resonate with that so much. I will frequently say the slides, if I use them, I'm going away from using them now, but the slides, the questions, that's all part of the training, but the experience is part of this training as well. Right. Everything I did with you is replicatable. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about how you can replicate that. And, and what I want people to do and what I'll say is, and when I did that, where did you feel it in your body? What sensations came up? How did you feel? What were some of the thoughts you started to have after that? Is that how you want your students to experience the classroom? Then, then how, what did I do? What did I say? What was my body language? What was my tone? What, how did I arrange this interaction that caused you to feel that way? What I have found is educators are some of the worst people to train I have ever trained in the sense that the very things that drive them crazy about their students are the very things they do in professional training experiences. And so what I've learned to do is it doesn't even frustrate me, really. I use it. I absolutely use it. And it, it's, it is amazing. When I am in an elementary school, there is like an energy and a youthfulness and a responsiveness that we have, which mm -hmm. is different than when I go to a high school. But let me tell you the word middle school. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell them, look, you've been around middle schoolers all day. But I do want you to know, because I will say, I'm holding up a mirror. I want you to see what I see. Mm -hmm. And y'all have to just like y'all students now. What I want you to point out after I've like asked a question and no one responds. And I'm talking, I could be talking anywhere from 20 to 100 people. You heard it. Their attention, they're all over. They're not paying attention. They're, or they, I'm not going to say they're not paying attention, but they're not looking at me, all these things. So I let it go on for a while. And then I pause it. And then I say, so how did I navigate that? And is that how you navigate your middle school students? Mm -hmm. Or do you default to using intimidation and authority? Mm. Now, had I done that here, how would you have responded to me? And if nothing else, now you sit in this very interesting spot of empathy because you can empathize with me, the trainer, because you stand in this spot as the educator, but you can also empathize with the student because maybe it's been a long day. It's for 50 of y'all, I have no idea what's going on in every person's life. And it will be easy for me to make up stories about you, about why you're not. But I realize that that's not, that's not necessarily going to be effective. Mm -hmm. And so I, I encourage and usher people into a space of saying, how would you like to be responded to? when this is what's happening with you, when participation feels a little hard or when you, well, it's really hard not to talk to the person next to you. How would you like me to treat you human to human? Right. Now treat your students that way and see how that shifts. And so I do think, and I, I'm able to do it with parents and, and that whole thing. I do want to talk a little bit about this shift. You were the, like, 
I didn't like the term either, but I used it a lot. And you helped me shift my language around it. And language is so important. So let's go back to some of the damaging language Mm -hmm. that is used within, specifically within the education system um, to talk about youth. How can we reframe that? And then I'm going to ask you to define a few words that you've used, but Mm -hmm. let's start there. What's some of the damaging language? Oh, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, Some of the language that is used to talk about students that is really, really um, concerning and alarming for me is when it parallels, um, you know, like the prison system. Um, We talk about students as being repeat offenders. Um, if they're, you know, getting in trouble a lot, um, and, you know, sometimes we talk just calling students, you know, non-compliant, um, diff- even difficult. Um, I can remember when my son was in preschool and his preschool teacher had labeled him as difficult and, um, what that meant for me as a parent hearing that and my child was being a child he was he was three (laughs) you know like he's a typical three-year-old he wasn't difficult um he was just you know curious and and active um but some of the language that we hear is you know all around students being non-compliant and um hard to work with or hard to manage or, um, you know, it's all kinds of language that is deficit focused and um, doesn't really consider the strengths that a child may bring to the classroom and how can we help to cultivate that um, and how can we use that to create a, a positive learning environment in our classroom. Um, I don't hear enough of that. So educators have to be mindful of the words that they're using to talk about students, because um, I truly believe that the words you speak become the house you live in. And so if you are constantly being deficit um, based in the way that you talk about um, your school environment, or the students in the school environment, or even your your coworkers, um, that's going to become your reality. And so I really think that we need to be aware of that and be actively trying to counter that. And it does take work because it's easy to fall into you know some of the deficit thinking. You know, um, part of my experience when I was first starting to work in schools and I was in um, a poorly resourced school. And I remember thinking like, if I didn't know like the history of how this school became to be what it is, I could come in here and I could probably find something to confirm every negative racist thought that I had about who these kids were, who their parents were, what um, this neighborhood is. Um, And I could confirm all of that right here in this school building. Um, But it really takes us being aware and really being um, active in trying to counter that that bias and that negative talk and thinking that we bring into schools. We need to be more asset-based. We need to be looking at what the strengths are that students bring into the classroom. Can you help reframe at-risk for us? Because I think there are a lot of people who talk about at-risk youth and and, um, are using it in a way that they may feel is actually compassionate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and we've all kind of used that term probably at some point. Um, but I think when you know better, you do better. And when you really think about that term at risk, it makes you think about what are they at risk of? <laughs> or, um, you know, what what is, it, it frames your mind to think about that person and they need to be fixed. 
But when you flip it and you really think about the system <laughs> and that the system is um, threatening them, instead of saying at-risk youth and saying youth navigating threatening systems, then it puts the onus on fixing the system and not fixing the youth. And that's a really important switch, especially when you're in a helping profession, because it's easy for us to get into the, the thinking that we have to fix people. And that's not our job. Our job is really, as I see it, to fix the system so that it more accurately is helping the people who need the help um, from the system, but aren't getting it. And the system needs to be fixed so it's not perpetuating these um, negative outcomes that we see. So it's really about just making that switch in your mind. We don't need to fix people. So children are not high risk. What's the issue is the system. The system is threatening and we need to fix that. Amen, 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 right? We, those of us in the helping professions, were literally taught to fix people. Yeah. That, that was our education. That was our internship. That was our capstone. That was it. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? How are we going to help them? You know, the systems are often what prevent people from thriving. Mm-hmm. The systems themselves. I am a part of that system. I'm not speaking as an outsider. I am speaking as an insider. Mm-hmm. We are the system. And as long as the system is this thing floating up in the sky with no body, Mm-hmm. and no name, then it becomes something that is so unattainable. Mm-hmm. But when you realize, and what, what Dr. Kennedy has helped me realize, is that the system is not this mythical thing. The system is you. The system is me. Right. We are the system. So when she did that timeline, the education system and this huge, unaddressable large thing that I had made up in my mind became a series of people, educators, administrators, and students, parents, and communities. Oh, I can do that. Those are people. I can talk to people. I can have relationship with people. We can't have relationships with systems. Right. We have relationship with people. Mm-hmm. And language does matter. So when we say youth navigating threatening systems, oh, shoot. Well, what's threatening the babies? Right. Well, what's, what's the threat, right? If you had to send your child to school and the child, and as you're sending them to school, part of the paperwork that comes home says we're a threatening system, but the first day of school is August 17th. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. Talk, talk to me more about this threat. What, what does this mean? So we, we might have questions and then we will, well, how does it become less threatening? And right. But when our kids are at risk, then we are putting all of that into act right, mm-hmm. do right, do what they tell you to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And once we understand the history of how so many of these systems were specifically created mm-hmm. to perpetuate ideals of inferiority and superiority, Then we start looking very differently at it when we realize that folks who have been pushed to the margin based on identities that they hold and have no control over don't make them a problem. It makes the system that pushed them to the margins the problem. And it really redefines like how we look at it. When you talked about being a friend, you said that you worked with these beautiful young girls um, to help them build social capital. And I just have a feeling that that might be a term that not all of my listeners are familiar with. So can you define that for us? Yeah. So when I talk about helping build social capital, it's really about relationships. Again, it goes back to those relationships. Who are people in their community that they can, um, that can be a resource to them. Who are, you know, the, um, who's the, the teachers that they should know? 
How do you um, get to know your local librarian? You know, who are people in your community? Um, is there a church community in your neighborhood? And there's somebody that you should know. Who are the folks at the YMCA that um, you should know that can help you in all kinds of situations where you need to leverage a relationship? So it's really about helping them to find who those people are, develop relationships with them, and understand when they can um, leverage those relationships based on what their needs might be. So that's really all it is. It's really just who are the people in your neighborhood and let's build a relationship with them. I love that. I feel like uh, a lot of people have social capital, like listeners, for example, you have social capital. You just never thought about it. Mm -hmm. Like we think about capital as in like money or property um, investments, social capital. And how do you know you have social capital? When something goes wrong in your life, you can pick up your phone and call somebody. Mm-hmm. That's social capital. And when you don't know a mechanic, you can call you, you, your, your two degrees of separation from everything you need, because you can call this person and be like, Hey, do you know, do you know a mechanic? This is what's going on. My car. And it's like, Oh yeah, I got you. Hey, I think I want to start a business. Do you know somebody who does logos? Oh yeah, I got you. I got you. And they start sending you three and four people's names. And when you want to get your hair done this certain way, they're like, Oh, let me tell you about the social capital. And when we think about so many young people um, who are navigating threatening systems because they've been labeled such a way, people aren't going to make relationships with them. And so when they have a need, they turn to the only relationships they have. Now we'll judge who they're turning to and how they are navigating it, but we've never stopped to think about What are the other relational options that they have? Because everyone is too busy labeling them and seeing them as the problem. So they're not building relationships with them. And it, you know, it just, it reminds me of how easily like, oh my goodness, this is happening. Let me call so-and-so and see if they can do this for me. Whatever the, this is, I, I, I'm really encouraging people to think of that. That's capital. That, that, that is something that you have at your disposal that you can utilize with, with little effort or little energy, right? And now with social media, some people have increased their social capital by being able to go on and say a post, I'm looking for this. Anybody have recommendations? And then you get tons of comments of going, oh, here's an option. Here's an option. Here's an option. Have you stopped to consider that as a resource that you have, but might be taking for granted because not everyone can do that. Not everyone can call someone when they need something and and help get their needs met. And so relationship building is about the one-on-one connection, but it also means that now that I'm connected to you, I have the possibility to connect you to the people I'm connected to. This podcast is social capital because just today I've been able to name two to three different episodes where I'm like, oh, is this a foreign concept? Go back and listen to this. At the end of every episode, I say, how can people get in touch with you? In every show note, in wherever you're listening, you got an email address or a website or something where you can reach out to people. Because one of my goals is not to just entertain you, but to help you know that at this point, I think this is going to be like our 104th episode, not to include bonuses. That's almost a hundred people that you can be like, wait, this person knows about this. And they have said I can reach out to them. And so not only looking at your personal relationships, but what are the other ways that you can build your own social capital in ways that you haven't even considered? So Adrian, I really appreciate you for just like introducing that because I do believe for a lot of people that will be an introduction to this way of being like, oh my God, right? Yeah, it's awesome. And 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 I love what you said about, you know, like, thinking about your own networks and any young people that you have connected to you, how can you help them 
start to build a network and how can you connect them to the folks that you're connected to? Because that means a lot. That means so much as they continue to grow and navigate this world, they need those connections. So think about how you can help several young people become more connected in in their space, in their community. I'll also say this too. This ain't charity work, right? Yes, you're connecting the young people to people in your network, but that young person is also awesome. That young person has a perspective, has lived experiences, has some kind of growing expertise in things that people in your network don't even know about. And so when you're connecting them, I don't want this to be viewed as, oh, let me just put the young people on. No, you're introducing this young people to other people who will benefit from knowing them right? This is how relationships work. Another part of the system that drives me nuts is every, okay, y'all, I don't do every, it's my bad. So many people <clears throat> go into relationships with the young people thinking, they do, thinking that they're doing the young person a favor. And it drives me crazy. I do it sometimes. It drives me crazy. Because when I see that, 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 that young person as a human, I began to realize I am a better human because I know them as well. Their laugh, their eyes, their, you know, their humor, the way they think about things, their questions. When I get to hang around youth, I'm enhanced because I'm with them, not just they're better because they're with me. That's arrogance. And that goes back to that supremacist stuff, right? So building social capital with young folks and connecting them to your networks and them connecting you to theirs, that's mutuality. That's relationship. That's not one-sided. And I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to make sure that important point was said. So Dr. Kennedy, is there anything that I didn't ask or we didn't get a chance to talk about that you were really hoping that we did or any parting words for the listeners as we start to wrap up? Yeah, I will say, um, you know, one of the things that I have really been thinking about and um, really just kind of working towards lately is experiencing more joy in the work that we do. And so um, I just wish that for everyone. I wish that for myself and for um, everyone who's doing this work, um, that we just move in the direction of the things that bring us joy in work and really consider what work would be like if we experience joy more often. And so I just wanna encourage folks to find the things that bring them joy in the work that they're doing and pursue that and continue to move in that direction. I love that. Um, You know, I would say it's probably fair to say that the vast majority of people who are working for an entity don't have lunch provided. You think that's fair to say? Yeah, for sure. The vast majority of people who are working, the job does not provide lunch. And so those people working there have probably several options, but they still eat. So they either bring their lunch or they go out at lunchtime and they eat and come back. If we understand that as a principle that doesn't ruffle feathers, why people be getting so mad because joy, because work ain't providing their joy. You better bring it with you. Put it in a paper bag. Take a step out, go for a walk, listen to some music and come back. Mm-hmm. Right? So we get stuck. I don't have joy at work. Bring it. Bring it with you. All of a sudden, people start bringing joy to work. And now we got kind of this potluck going on. Like, oh, there is something here because people brought it, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. systems were not designed to bring joy. Mm-hmm. They were not. If you look at the, the historical evolution of so many of the systems that we work in, they were not designed to bring joy, but you can bring it. Why? Because you are the system. 
I am the system. Dr. Kennedy is the system. And so, yes, I, I agree. You, so we need joy, but sometimes you got to bring it right. So I thank you so much for bringing your dopeness and your wisdom and your experience to the listeners. Um, so valuable. And I appreciate you. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. Um, I want to remind y'all before I go into my normal spiel, because I know that's probably when you cut the podcast off, I would. So I want to say, hey, t-shirts are back, (laughs) Um, but not just t-shirts, t-shirts and hoodies and tank tops and stickers and masks and mugs and pillows so anything you want is there so um you know go ahead to the laborsoflove.com shop slash shop and it'll take you to the place where you can buy all of your labors of love swag keep in mind that everything i make um which isn't a lot per purchase but that's fine Um, The message is more important than the money, but everything I make goes back into being able to do the things I do um, for other humans. And so with that, I'm going to give a shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sud from Instant Classic Media. And of course, you, my listeners, I love y'all. If you have suggestions for content or guests, head over to www.thelaborsoflove.com. Scroll down on the welcome page and leave me a message. And don't forget that we're on all the major social media's outlets. Um, Y'all following me on TikTok yet? You should. Um, Don't forget that YouTube is where all of our Therapy Thursday videos are housed. And if you have not already, what are you waiting for? Give us that five-star rating, write a review, and share the podcast with your loved ones and friends. Until we connect again, you all be well.